something to say. Hello everybody and welcome to this episode of Project Shadow. My name's Charlie. You might know me better as sci-fi fantasy writer C.E. Dorset. And today I would like to talk to you about something that I've learned in life. Yeah, and it probably has to do with the fact that really early on in my childhood when I first started doing creative work, my sister realizing that I really liked mythological creatures and stuff, bought me a book. That book was the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons Monster Manual. And she bought it for me because it had a unicorn on the cover and dragons. Now, I don't know if she knew that it belonged to a game or not. We've actually talked about that and she can't remember. And I know that I didn't quite understand that it belonged to a game at the time. I thought it was weird that it had stats for everything, but I was willing to roll with it. And soon I did discover that it went along with the game, and I started playing D&D. Now D&D, well technically AD&D, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, was something that really played a lot in my formative years as both a writer and someone who was being creative. And it instructed both my fandom and my writing. And that's kind of the trick that I wanted to talk to you about today. You see, what D&D taught me was that fantasy worlds could be quantified in terms of game mechanics. And so, over the years, as I've played various games, floated in and out of various fandoms, and created various worlds for myself, I've often thought about those worlds in terms of game mechanics. Sometimes that was easy. With both Star Trek and Robotech, there were role-playing games that went alongside them. And I have to say, the FASA... Star Trek books had some of the most fascinating stuff in them back in the day, especially before TNG came around and added more to the lore. And then, of course, FASA released a couple TNG books, which was really cool. That's where I learned that Picard's book Klingon before that was ever revealed on the TV show. But it, it did a lot to my creative process in that while I would say that I don't create a role-playing game for every setting or world that I create, I do try to think about the various systems throughout through which the world operates as systems so that when I am writing them or employing them in story, I have a methodology through which I can kind of judge whether or not a feat would be possible within the setting, thus trying to keep some sense of consistency in the story. While that may not sound much different from 
your standard run-of-the-mill um, world-building. It is something that, for me, has caused me to do a lot more math than most probably would for the types of fiction that they're working on. So, for example, as you know, I'm working on a new space opera series that I had discussed as a joke on the show, and then a whole bunch of people were like, yes, do that. And so I am. And so I spent a couple weeks doing a lot of trigonometry, trying to figure out a coordinate system that I wanted to use so that I could, A, employ real-life stars, should I wish, and put them in the appropriate place in the galaxy, and so that I could determine distance, because one of the things that bothers me most in a sci-fi setting is when ships are able to move at the speed of plot. And so I required, as part of the system that I came up with for the world, the coordinate system to actually make sense, so that when I plugged a planet into my spreadsheet and said, how, long is it, how far is it from here to there, I would get an accurate distance in light years. But also to come up with a mathematical formula that I would then employ for speed so that I could calculate how long it would take to travel from point A to point B in a realistic way. See, realism for me is kind of a fudgy topic when it comes to fiction, and I think fiction needs to be as realistic as it needs to be. And so there are a lot of times where I'm willing to hand wave a lot of stuff because, honestly, people don't care as much about the, you know, biological functioning of a species and whatnot. But they do care when things come off as too convenient. And so by taking the time to do a little research, and for example, one of the species that I really wanted to have in the story looked like it was going to be silicone-based, but I know that for silicone to be as malleable as carbon, the temperatures at which the creature, the person, would have to live would be so high, it would kill most carbon, it would, it would kill every carbon-based life form that got near it. I didn't want to do that, and because that's something that does kind of bother me in fiction, I had to take a different route to get to the same place that I wanted to get without making them a silicone-based life form. So the question is, how can they be still be carbon-based, but have the appearance that I want as a silicone-based life form? Now, that's something that probably won't bother the vast majority of people that read the text. And I'm not sure how explicit that information is going to be in the story itself. But it's something that bugs me. And so I took the time to systematize their biology. It wasn't... And I'm not... Okay. So I'm not saying that I created a life form that could biologically exist. It's possible. But I am not a xenobiologist. I am not a PhD biologist. I'm sure there are many things that I got wrong. But I knew what would bother me as a reader and as a writer. 
and adopted through research as much as I could in the way of a system to mitigate those concerns. So when I was creating um, the Ash the world of the Ash, Ash Dancer, can't talk today. <laughs> it's been a trend this week, hasn't it? Anyway, when I was creating the world of the Ash Dancer, I knew that magic was going to be a very hefty part of the series because if I'm going to write fantasy, then I'm going to write fantasy. And so I actually wrote quite a bit about magic and the magic system of the world, really systematizing it to the best of my ability so that I would have a firm grasp on what is and is not possible within the world and exactly how magic would and should operate. Now, like I said before, it's not exactly what you'd find in a tabletop role-playing game. There are no dice rolls, there are no numbers or stats or anything like that. And I don't measure to see if anybody's power goes up to 9,000. But I do have a firm understanding of the setting so that, for example, I don't run into the problem that J.K. Rowling did when she got to book seven, The Deathly Hollows, and wants the characters to be dealing with a lack of food. Because very clearly, in all of the previous books, we see people just kind of wave their wand and food happens. So, we get Hermione inserting a rule, and we find out that basically all that food was in the refrigerator already. It was basically just being teleported into place by Mrs. Weasley and others that we saw do it. And we kind of get that throughout the series, where... We at first believe that Dumbledore claps his hands and food appears on the tables. And then we learn that it's actually, you know, there are actually house elves down in the kitchens. And they're kind of teleporting the food up. And that it still bothers me when I read the Deathly Hollows Because that wasn't a firmly established rule until it was necessary. And so this is, to me, where systemization and really thinking about this like game mechanics plays in. It's about taking a little bit of time early in the process and kind of throwing obstacles at the magic system and asking yourself, would I want characters to be able to fill in the blank? If the answer is no then I need to, at that point, write a hard and fast rule that says, no, characters cannot do that. Then, of course, the fun starts coming in. Well, what if I want characters to be able to do that? Or I want that to appear to be happening in the story. This actually is one of the big tensions in the first Mask of the Gods book, Crucify My Love, which will hopefully soon be out. We learn very early in that book that something is causing the dead to rise from the grave. Well, Shinobu and various other characters are well-versed in the magic of Talam, and they know that that cannot happen. And since that cannot happen, that can't be what's going on, but it really looks like that's what's going on. 
And so what ensues, what follows, is essentially a magical mystery novel where the characters are trying to figure out in this world where magic operates in a certain way, how is it that this impossible thing appears to be happening? And that's the kind of fiction that I rather enjoy. That's the kind of fiction that I like, because along the way, the rules of magic are explained. And as the rules of magic are explained, then the system is there for the reader to be able to solve the puzzle. And, you know, as a writer, I'm always nervous that the puzzle is going to be too easy to solve. But hopefully, hopefully, I did a good job writing the mystery and those who have read the book so far have told me that they had theories, but they hadn't quite figured it out. But once, you know, the truth got, you know, explained to them at the end, when the mystery solved, they were like, oh, and they put all the pieces together. So hopefully that holds true for the majority of readers. But see, writing that kind of a magical mystery story requires you to understand the nature of magic in your setting and understand it in such a way that you can easily explain it and slowly explain it in small bite-sized chunks so that you don't have very long passages where you're detailing the nature of magic in the world. But it creates a magical mystery that the audience does have the ability to solve and that is fun to write. This, this technique is one that I've kind of developed over the years, and I've actually spent some time, and I would recommend if you're curious about this, actually getting some books on game design, maybe follow some YouTube channels or um, podcasts that spend a lot of time on game design. Because as... As I develop as a writer over the years, one of the things that has come to light to me more than anything else is how the interlocking systems of my world affect not only the characters, but the reader's experience of the text. So making sure that the reader and the characters are both experiencing a consistent world is very important but it's not the only thing that's important. The most important part of this whole thing is knowing when and where you can not be accurate as far as how things work in reality. Now, you'll notice that I started this discussion by saying that it's important to have a system so that you're not violating the expectations of your readers. This is, for me, where Full Metal Alchemist completely fell apart and why I haven't had the desire to watch Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. I was learning a magic system. I was learning about a world, about a setting, about a place that I thought I knew and I thought I understood. And as, you know, anime and manga are want to do... When I got to the third act, actually, let me explain that for a minute. Classic Japanese and um, 
even Chinese and sometimes Korean stories follow a pattern that's very different from the one that we use in the West. And I'm going to use the Japanese because that's how I learned it. It's the Kisho Ten Ketsu model. And so you begin with the key, which is the setup. We meet the characters, we meet the world, and we see what it's like. Um, so it's Kisho. In the second stage, that world is developed. Meaning we go deeper into the world and discover its deeper lore and how it works. So you can think about this in the earlier episodes of Full Metal Alchemist. We learn what alchemy is. We learn how alchemy is used in the world. And we learn that our protagonist is special because he doesn't have to draw the um, transmutation circles. They can form as he's doing working the magic. In the second part of the series, we start learning what is and is not possible in the magic system. We start learning what it is you know, what the Philosopher's Stone is. We learn exactly how our antagonist, Scar, does the same type of magic and how he uses it. We learn the problems with human um, transfiguration. We learn... So, we learn more. We deepen our understanding of the world. Okay? Okay, so key show 10. 10 is the twist. Now, the twist is meant to take you completely outside of everything that you learned before. This is the moment where the story just turns on its head and something new, a twist, is offered into the story. I can't talk about it. Oh, I want to so bad. I use this method in writing very specifically, unintentionally, while writing um, Crucify My Love. And so there's a moment where you get to that twist. In Full Metal Alchemist, and I'm sorry for the spoilers here, but I, I don't know how much different Full Metal Alchemist is from Brotherhood or what have you. This is where we learn that there is an alternative dimension, and in it we have the Nazis and World War II happening and all of that. That twist is where that show lost me. But I tried to hold on because the last stage, Ketsu, the last stage is the reconciliation. So in the Ketsu stage, in the last stage, that twist, that out of the ordinary, unexpected thing is reconciled and brought back into harmony with what we learned in the previous two sections. And for me, Full Metal Alchemist didn't do that. I hear Brotherhood is better. I've tried to watch it, but I... Oh, I got so mad at the original show, I still haven't been able to watch that show. But it's a good way of seeing these elements in play. Um, and once you know these elements in play, a lot of Japanese, Chinese, and Korean stories will be a lot clearer to you because you'll see that this is the plot structure that they use. You can apply it to, you know, a Hayao Miyazaki story. You can apply it to Akira. You can apply it to just about anything, right? 
So if you're writing that type of a story, which is the type of story that lately I have gravitated towards and kind of accidentally reinvented the wheel on, I spent like three to five years struggling with my own creative process to basically come up with something that they had been doing in China, Asia, in China, Japan, and Korea for over a thousand years. Well, almost a thousand years. So, yeah. <laughs> but, hey, you know, I didn't exactly waste the time. I just wish I would have found out about that sooner. But if you're working in that kind of a paradigm where you're going to be doing this Kishu Tenketsu storytelling, which if you've never tried it, I highly recommend that you at least try it if you're a writer. But if you're trying to do that, well, you need to be careful because the ten, the surprise, should still be possible within the rules that were set up previously. If the reason Full Metal Alchemist upset me so much was I thought I understood the rules, and when you twisted them, when they were changed in the way that they were changed, I felt betrayed by the story. I felt that it went outside of everything that I wanted to and was bizarre just for the sake of being bizarre. And then, for the worst part of it, it never found a way to reconcile itself back. Because no matter how big your surprise is, no matter how big the twist is that happens, you still have to bring about resolution. So the, the realm of possibility created in the rules that are set up in your first two stages when you're doing key and show, they need to be followed in the 10 unless the point of it is to show that the rules are not exactly what we thought they were. That technique is risky and requires you as a writer to not be a pantser because you really need to have that thoroughly worked out so that the setup works. The setup has to be done so well so that when you get to the 10, when you get to that twist, when you get to that reversal and the entire world's thrown on its head, it is something that doesn't feel violative of the world. And that can be a really tricky thing to do. So the more you understand about the world, the easier it will be to take that final plunge into the twist and eventually to the resolution, the reintegration, the point where harmony is brought back into the world. And that is really one of the main reasons I highly recommend that you look at the story you're working on like a game. It also helps a lot when, as a fan, you're trying to figure out a story. As you've witnessed along the way, while we've been talking about who the Red Angel might be in Star Trek Discovery this season, one of the things that you notice that I keep referring to is our understanding of the rules and mechanics of the setting. We know several ways that time travel can occur. We know of several 
anomalies that have occurred in world that could allow for time travel or that could have brought about this initial set of circumstances and we are trying to base our argumentation thereupon. This is the danger that a show like Star Trek Discovery is flirting with. Whatever the answer is, whatever the solution is to the puzzle that they have presented, it needs to have been discoverable, no pun intended, by the viewers of the show. If we get to the end and... Oh, it's no one that we've ever heard of before. Like, I have a feeling it's going to be super Tilly. Just saying. I think I've mentioned that on the show. If not, I hope I will try to remember to do that on the next Discovery episode and go into that in more detail. But when we actually get there, if it's like, oh, look, it's this alien we've never heard of who's doing things for reasons we don't understand because... It was demanded by the plot it was. Then the whole season's going to fall flat. You know, this is one of the big problems in fiction. You never want anything in your story to feel like it happened because a wizard did it. Or worse, because that's how the writer wanted it. And so, by George, that's the way it's going to be done. Neither of those is satisfactory to a reader, a viewer, a listener, what have you. So, the struggle goes on. And if we are going to combat that, we need to come up with a system. Now, how do you do that? I've talked a lot about why systems are important and how systems are used. How do you do that? Well, I would say that that's very much up to you. And I know that sounds like a cop-out, but it's not. You see... One, it depends on how much you like math, right? So, for example, if you're somebody like me who really kind of enjoys doing math and getting into the nitty-gritty of how the formulas work, then doing all of the trig to set up a, a coordinate system for the universe is fun, and I enjoy doing that. Trying to figure out the math by which to calculate travel and actually creating a travel formula that will translate into setting as how travel actually occurs, I find that fun. I like doing that. If you hate math, if you don't like making spreadsheets and you don't like doing all of that, then that's going to be a nightmarish slog for you. So you have to be aware of what it is that you were, you feel careful what you feel comfortable doing. So, if you are very unfamiliar with how game mechanics might work for story, I highly recommend that you go get yourself a copy of a game called Ryutama. That's R-Y-U-U-T-A-M-A. It's like 15 bucks on DriveThruRPG. This is not a sponsored podcast. It's just a game I've gotten fairly fascinated by recently it's it's really interesting because it's set up so simple that it's really easy to play and it's a game wherein the game master the person controlling the game and the players playing the game construct the world together through gameplay 
And so the rules are very simple and they're very clear and they allow for almost an infinite number of games to be played out of this very basic set of rules that takes very little time to read. And if you like um, manga and if you like dragons, the artwork in the book is beautiful. It is whimsical. The game has been referred to as um, Hayao Miyazaki's Oregon Trail. And that that is accurate. That works. So if you're completely unfamiliar with tabletop role-playing games and you don't know what that might look like, get yourself a copy of Ryutama. Like I said, it's like 15 bucks for, for the game book. And just read it. And you'll see how simple it can be to do game mechanics to build a world. It's a beautiful thing. And for those who don't like doing a lot of math, that might be a good way to go. If you're already familiar with various other games, maybe utilize the systems that you know from there and kind of build on them and develop them to make them your own. There's no right or wrong way to do this, just like with anything in fiction. But it'll be very rewarding for both you and your readers if you do. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, and the app that you're listening to me on allows you to rate either this episode or the podcast in general, please do so, especially if you're listening in iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Really helps a lot. Tells the algorithm to share me with more people. If you got a buck you can throw my way down in the show notes, you'll see a link that says Anchor Community Support. If you click that, you can join the project at the $1, $5, or $10 levels. That money helps me to do everything. So if you can, that would really be appreciated, and thank you. If you don't have any money to give right now, trust me, understand. Oh, do I ever understand that? That's all right. But if you know anybody that you think would like this podcast, please share it with them. That helps out a lot. If you have a question, comment, or topic you'd like to hear me discuss on the show, please go to anchor.fm, download the Anchor app, follow Project Shadow, and then hit the little button that says voice message. You can leave up to a one-minute message, keep it clean so I can use it on the show, and we'll make this our podcast. You can also hit me up on Twitter. I'm C.E. Dorset on Twitter. I'm there much more than I should be. You can find links to all my social media, as well as everything that I do over at projectshadow.com. And until next time, don't forget, have the fun. Bye.